0: Our Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus so that in him we can be forever and always secure. Thank you for the good work that you have begun in us and your promise to bring that work to completion. As we hear you speak to us today, may our love for you grow more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's please be seated. Okay. Well, good morning, once again. Um, It's now coming towards the end of January, so this is the time to ask the big question. How are your New Year's resolutions going? Um, I was uh, talking to Beth Cheer recently in the car, and she told me that actually, New Year's resolutions can sometimes fail. Like this one that uh, she pointed to me on the internet. Diet day one. I have removed all the bad food from the house. It was delicious. (laughs) A couple of weeks ago, I got this uh, WhatsApp message from my mum. It says, Dad and I are making belated New Year's resolutions to get fit, includes getting up early and going for a run. Three days later, she sent me this. New Year's resolutions already collapsed. I pulled a muscle in my back on Sunday whilst putting on a sock. (laughs) And Dad's got a bad cold, flu, so not a good start. after the physio. OK, so <laughs> how's your New Year's resolution going? Um, if you're aiming to get into shape this year, I hope you're having a bit more success than my mum and dad. Maybe some of us have resolved that this year, we want to get in, into shape spiritually. This year, we just want to love God even more. That's our resolution. Actually, that doesn't need to be a resolution for the new year. That's something we all want to do as Christians. We all want to grow in our love for God. So, how are we going to do it? I mean, getting into shape physically, it's simple. Okay, it's not, not easy It takes a lot of discipline and self-control and things, but it's not, it's not complicated. We all know what we've got to do. Um, we just have to eat less and exercise more. It's not a complicated thing. It's a bit like snakes and ladders. So, climb those ladders. Get to the gym. Get that exercise routine going, put in the effort and avoid the snakes, you know, the chocolates, you know, the fast food, the junk food, that kind of stuff. And if you do that, if you just stick to the plan, then you're bound to see an improvement. That's just how it works. It's pretty straightforward. Um, but here's the question. How can we get into shape spiritually? Does that same principle hold? So can we guarantee that this year, if we sign up for every single training course that Shanti announced earlier, if we read the Bible every day, if we pray every day, if we come to church every single week, we just work really hard to avoid sin and to be kind people, can we guarantee that then when December comes, we will love God a lot more than we do now? Is it that simple? Or is it possible that we could do all those things and get to December and feel that actually we love God less than we do now? Well, yeah, it's it's possible, isn't it? It is possible. Getting into shape spiritually is very different from getting into shape physically. So imagine your best friend. Okay, let's imagine that this year, your best friend becomes an exercise freak. So she decides, every single week, I'm going to go to the gym three times. And she does, without fail, all through the year. She counts every single calorie. At the end of the year, she stands on the scales and she's fatter and flabbier than before. No, that's just ridiculous, that doesn't happen, does it? That's not how things work in the physical world. The physical world, the general rule is, you put in the effort, you get out the result. Very straightforward. But in the spiritual world, it's not quite so simple. It's not so hard to imagine a friend of ours saying, I always try to do my best for God, but I still don't feel that I really love him. How can I love God more? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? And that's the question that we're looking at here this morning. How can I love God more? And of course, we're going to want to ask, well, what does the Bible say about all this? Last week, uh, we were getting to know a bit about Jesus, and Jesus was starting to get a reputation as, do you remember what Andrew said? The party king. Uh, Religious people wrote this party king off as he's just not holy enough. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's a bit strange. How could he really be holy, they thought, if he spends time with people like that? I mean, holy people should keep separate from sinners, shouldn't they? That's how the Pharisees thought. Do you know what the word Pharisee means? It sounds like the word separate. The Pharisees, they live their whole lives playing um, sort of spiritual snakes and ladders climbing that ladder of religious duties and and staying well away from those nasty, wicked sinners who could pollute them and corrupt them. And today, we get an insight into their way of thinking when Jesus visits a Pharisee's house. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Thank you, Tim. Um, Well, we don't know very much about this Pharisee. Um, Perhaps he heard Jesus preaching in the synagogue that morning. And he got curious. He thought, who is this man? This Jesus? I don't know. And so he invites the visiting speaker out for lunch. And I said, never a bad idea. Well, so in that in culture, uh, if you go for a meal, what do you do? Well, you don't sit down at a table like we do today. Instead, you recline at the table. So um, there's this big courtyard. In the middle of the courtyard, they have a low table. The food's set out on the table. And in uh, you come, if you're an invited guest, and you recline. That means you sort of lie down, um, facing the food. On your left side, your arm, left arm is propping you up and your right hand is free to take the food. And your feet are stretched out towards the courtyard walls. That, that's a bit uncomfortable. I suppose you get used to it. Um, so that's what you do if you are an invited guest. But in those days, there could also be uninvited guests. That's not unusual. At uh, The uninvited guests, they wouldn't eat the food, but they would be welcome just to stand around the walls of the courtyard, listening to the conversation for the pearls of wisdom that might drop from this visiting preacher. So, uh, there's Jesus, he's reclining at the table, uh, eating his nice lunch with the the Pharisee, and probably not just with the Pharisee, I imagine there are lots of other respectable guests who've been gathered together uh, for this special occasion. And everything seems to be going well until a sinful woman arrives. Verses 37 and 38. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So we can imagine maybe there's the Pharisee tucking away into his his salad. um, And he looks up and, oh, what does he see? Oh, it's her, that dreadful woman, oh. The Bible doesn't actually tell her what her sins were. Um, it doesn't need to. The point is everyone in the room knew what kind of a woman she was. We don't want to spell that kind of thing out. No, not in polite company uh, this morning. Um, no, no need to, to explain about her. So the Pharisee, he looks at her coming in. I'm trying not to look at anybody here. Um, <laughs> and, he, and he sees this woman. look like something the cat's just dragged in. Oh, and he thinks, what cheek? What she of her, a person like her, to come into my house? How dare she? Doesn't she realize this is a respectable gathering of respectable men? No place for someone like the likes of her. So he fixes his beady eye on her as she walks around the back of the courtyard and stops directly behind Jesus. And then she begins to cry. Actually, she doesn't just cry, she weeps. In fact, she doesn't just weep, she weeps on Jesus. She weeps on the guest of honor. And it isn't just a little snuffle here. Uh, Verse 38 says she's wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. The actual word originally, it's used for rain. It's like she's showering tears on Jesus here. Well, it's a real commotion. Um, I'm sure everyone in the room is staring at this woman. And then, when it seems as though things just can't get any worse, what does she do next? She lets down her hair! (gasps) Well, in those days, it's absolutely shocking. Um, In that culture, the only place a respectable lady would let down her hair was in the privacy of the bedroom. (gasps) Letting down your hair in public could be a grounds for divorce. (sighs) Farrah, she just can't believe what he's seeing. She's awful. And then with his eyes fixed on the, the horrors of this woman comes the final straw. What's she doing now? wiping Jesus' feet and kissing them. The Pharisee and his highly respected guests completely lose their appetite. I'm sure they avert their eyes at this point. Um, And now, everyone's looking at Jesus. Hmm. What's Jesus going to do about this? Well, what does Jesus do? Well, to the shock and amazement of the Pharisee, Jesus does nothing at all. He just, just, not even the slightest rebuke. He just keeps on lying there, reclining, right? almost like he's enjoying it. As the Sinner continues with her awful behavior. Well, by now the Pharisee's seen enough, hasn't he? Uh, and his disgust for this woman spreads to Jesus. Verse 39 gives us his perspective. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The Pharisee probably invited Jesus over because he wanted to work out who Jesus really was. Um, and more now, he's got his answer, hasn't he? Or at least he thinks he does. Um, who are the three main characters in this story? Have you noticed? So, um, there's, of course, there's the Jesus, there's the woman, and the Pharisee. And verse 39 shows us the Pharisee's view of all three of them. So, first of all, who is Jesus? And, well, whoever he is, he's considerably less than a prophet. Because he's letting this woman touch him. And who is this woman? Well, she is a filthy, dirty sinner. No self-respecting person would ever let himself be touched by someone like that. Not even going to get close. And this shows us something about the Pharisee too, doesn't it? Who's the Pharisee? In his own eyes, he is. he's in a totally different class to this woman. He's spiritually pure right at the top of the religious Premier League. And she's like stuck down at the bottom of the relegation zone. Men like him keep well away from people like her. Why? Well, because remember, what what game do the Pharisees play? It's spiritual snakes and ladders, isn't it? Uh, Pharisees like to spend their whole lives climbing that spiritual ladder, keeping all the uh, religious rules and regulations and keeping well away from dirty, sinful snakes And this woman is the snakiest snake of them all. She's just taken Jesus right back down to square one. And he didn't even notice. What kind of prophet is that? Well, we're gonna find out, because Jesus answers this Pharisee with a parable. verses 40 to 43. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors one owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Well, it's a very simple story, isn't it? Two people are called into the bank, and they're both in trouble. They both have debts. How big are these debts? Uh, well, the, the smaller debt is 50 denarii. A denarii, so was a day's wage. And um, so, that's a couple of months' wages. What about the other one? Well, 10 times the size, 500 You're getting on for two years' wages now. Um, but even though these two people owe different amounts, they're actually both in exactly the same position. Neither of them can pay back their debt. And so they're both in trouble. One of them is about to default on his new iPhone, perhaps. Um, the other is about to have his car repossessed, or maybe his, his house. So, in they come to the bank, and they confess to the bank manager. They just cannot pay. And then comes the shock of the story. What does the bank manager do? Well, he just cancels the debts, both of them. Just like that. He writes it off. Um, he bears the loss himself and then sends them home free. Well, what a relief. Well, quite a surprise, isn't it? I don't know if your bank manager's like that. Um, <laughs> Have you ever met a Batman like that? Anyway, so that's the story that um, Jesus tells to Simon the Pharisee. And then Jesus asks him, so then, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Okay, so it's a very simple story. But actually, this story is also simply genius. Because in this story, what's actually Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is gently correcting the Pharisees' view of all the three main characters in the story. So, first of all, um, who is Jesus? Well, uh, is Jesus less than a prophet? No, he's he's at least a prophet. How do we see that? Well, look again at verse 39. Who's the Pharisee talking to here? Himself. But in verse 40, what does Jesus do? Jesus answers him. Jesus answers the Pharisees' thoughts. Jesus isn't less than a prophet. He's at least a prophet, maybe more. So it turns out the Pharisee is actually wrong about Jesus. What about the woman? Is she really a filthy, dirty sinner? Well, let's start with a bit about sinner. Is she a sinner? Well, yeah, of course, she's a sinner. The Pharisee's got that bit, right? But what kind of a sinner is she? Is she a filthy, dirty sinner? No. She is a cleansed, forgiven sinner. So the Pharisee's wrong about her, too. He's wrong because he doesn't understand forgiveness. The Pharisee assumes that Jesus just doesn't know about her sins. That's why he lets her get so close. But no, Jesus hasn't overlooked her sins, actually. Jesus was watching every time she ever sinned. He's seen it all. Yeah, he's seen her sins. Um, But Jesus is like that surprising bank manager. He's canceled those sins. Canceled them all. And so, Jesus has seen her sins, and actually, he's not just seen her sins, has he? He's also seen the Pharisees' sins, which means, of course, the Pharisee's wrong about himself, too. And Simon put himself in a totally different class to that woman, but actually, both of them are in that same sinking ship. And it's like um, like you know, Shania Twain. Yeah. So, you're a Pharisee. That don't impress me much. You may be the snakes and ladders champion of the world, but you're still a sinner with a spiritual debt bigger than you can ever repay. So the Pharisee and the woman are both going down in the same sinking ship. For both of them, there's no hope at all, no hope unless God freely cancels their sin. So actually, what's the main difference between them? Is it the size of the debt? Hmm, Actually, that's irrelevant, isn't it? The main difference is that one is aware of the debt and the other one isn't. And so, obviously, we should be thinking now, shouldn't we? Well, how about us? How aware are we of our debts before God? How conscious are we that we need God's forgiveness? Because we have a personal debt that we can never, ever pay back. In fact, it's never been a day of our lives when we have been able to repay the interest on that day's loan, let alone the whole loan itself. Um, So I think maybe over time we, we can start to forget this if we've been Christians a long time, possibly. Um, after all, we go to church every Sunday, uh, we go to a mid a midweek Bible study group, perhaps we're the leader of the growth group, and uh, we read the Bible and pray pretty much every day. We give money to charities. We're making progress against sin in our lives. Maybe last year there was a particular sin or a habit or, or a situation that always seemed to defeat us, but yeah, come to think of it, it's been a few months now, and yeah, I've, I've never fallen back into that. Yeah, I'm doing quite well compared to this time last year as a Christian. Maybe we think, yeah, we're pretty good spiritual shape, actually. Uh, almost, almost a role model for other Christians. Yeah, actually, it um, seems that other Christians do look up to us sometimes. Yeah? And so they should. Because in some ways, we are their spiritual superiors. Because we have traveled further up that snakes and ladders board, haven't we? Um, not, all of, not all the Christians that we know are you know, as faithful as us, as diligent as us. So there we are, focusing on all our achievements and all our progress. And what are we forgetting? Well, we're forgetting that we're still sinners. We're still sinners. And we still have a spiritual debt too big ever to repay. And if God hadn't rescued us, we'd be there going down on that sinking ship with no lifeboats, no jackets, no hope. It's so important that we don't forget that we are still sinners or deny it. Or else, like Simon the Pharisee, we won't be able to really see who Jesus is or who others are or even who we are. Instead, we'll get blinder and blinder every day, all the while congratulating ourselves. How well we see, that we see so much better than everybody else. It's called spiritual pride. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Did you ever wonder why Jesus accepted that, that lunch invitation from the Pharisee? I think it's because Jesus loves this Pharisee no less, no more than the sinful woman. And he wants to help the Pharisee to see again. So, uh, Jesus makes this respectable Pharisee learn a lesson from the sinful woman. Uh, Verse 44. Then, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Stop there, okay? Now, does this sound a bit surprising to you? You see this woman. Of course he sees the woman. Everyone sees the woman. They've heard her as well. She's been right in the center of attention for the last few minutes now. Um, I I first um, was struck by this when I went to a church in Miri in Sarawak. And they had a a dramatic presentation of this chapter. So is Jesus that comes into the room and he's reclining and he's eating and having a conversation. And in comes this woman making a total commotion. It's actually quite hard to hear what Jesus is saying because of the wailing of this woman and her sobs. And, and after conversation, then Jesus turns and do you see this woman? Of course. Like she's been in the spotlight for, for ages. It's totally obvious. So Jesus isn't talking physically si- about sight, is he? It's just like what Simon the Pharisee was thinking earlier. The point here is spiritually. Um, it's a bit like the film Avatar. Do you remember that a few years ago? Um, do you remember, what was their catchphrase? name of the song? Like, I see you. I see you. What, what did that mean? It meant, I know who you really are. It means I can see through your avatar. I see through your externals and your position, your place. in I see through all that. I see the real you, the you on the inside. And that's what this passage is really all about, isn't it? Um, just have a look again um, at those first few verses. So how is this man described in verses 36 to 39? Again and again, it's the Pharisee. The Pharisee, the Pharisee, the Pharisee. But then, as soon as Jesus starts speaking to the Pharisee, who does he become? Simon. Just Simon, all the way through, he's from now he's Simon. So Jesus, Simon's public image means exactly nothing. Nothing at all. Same with the woman. He doesn't care about her public reputation. Same with us, too. And so Jesus asks, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see through her reputation, to who she really is, on the inside? Do you see? Her spiritual position before God. Oh, you think you see. Actually, you think you can see her better than I can see her. You think she's a filthy, dirty sinner. And so now you're playing the comparison game, comparing her sins to yours, um, giving her a sneer, yourself a pat on the back. Okay, Simon, we can do that if you want. We can play the comparison game. And so Jesus plays the real comparison game. uh, 44b to 46. I entered your house... You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. When Jesus looks at us, what is it that he really notices? What really catches his attention? These verses give us the answer, don't they? And Jesus doesn't care about our reputation spiritually. He doesn't care about our place on the snakes and ladders board, whether good or bad, that don't impress him much. What Jesus cares about is how much do we love him? So who loved Jesus more? Is it the Pharisee or the sinful woman? It's obvious, isn't it? It's the sinful woman. She goes totally out of her way to honor Jesus, over the top, some people might say. Uh, But the Pharisee, he hardly does the bare minimum. Because in that culture, when you have guests over for a meal, normally you do three things. First, you'd uh, greet them with a kiss, like maybe a handshake today. Um, Second, you get a servant to go and wash their feet, uh, because they've been walking around in sandals. Obviously, their feet are all mucky and sticky and icky. And Um, and third, you you pour some anointing oil on their head. Um, Usually, they would use olive oil, because that was cheap and plentifully available. But which of these three greetings does the Pharisee actually give to Jesus? Well, actually, none of them. He ignores all of the the basic courtesies here. But how does the woman welcome Jesus? She gives him all three, extravagantly. So the Pharisee doesn't give Jesus even water or a towel. He'll be prepared to send a servant to do something for him. But the sinful woman personally washes Jesus' feet with her tears and then she wipes off all the muck and grime with her hair. The Pharisee doesn't give Jesus even a welcome kiss, not even a peck on the cheek. But this woman, sinful woman, kisses Jesus' feet, and repeatedly, and with devotion. The Greek word for kiss here is actually intensive. It's quite strong. The Pharisee doesn't put anything on Jesus' head, not even some cheap old olive oil. I suppose Jesus just isn't worth it. But for this woman, well, she breaks an alabaster flask of perfume and pours it all out. And for her, Jesus is worth it. And she spares no expense, but the Pharisee spares pretty much every expense. So, Simon, says Jesus, if you want to play the real comparison game, then it's obvious who loves me more? This sinful woman. How come? How, how, how come she loves Jesus so much? Well, here's the Pharisee's big surprise she has been forgiven. Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Hang on there. Um, is, is this consistent with reformed theology? Uh, what she's actually saying here, she's saying that her sins are forgiven for she loved much. What does that mean? Her sins are forgiven because she loved much? As if um, you can sort of earn forgiveness by loving God. The more you love him, the more you get forgiven. Is that the deal? Is that what Jesus is saying? If you want to to be forgiven lots, you have to love lots. As uh, as if we can sort of earn forgiveness by loving God. Well, obviously it can't be. Um, Just think of the parable Jesus has told. What comes first, the forgiveness or the love? Obviously, the forgiveness comes first. The bank manager cancels the debts, and then the former debtors love him as a result. Um, So when Jesus says... She's forgiven much for she loved much. The word for or because isn't giving um, a reason, it's giving the evidence. It's the same today. We use the, the, the language the same kind of way. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in Ippo. You know, Ippo is famous for all sorts of nice food. And uh, so the, my friends up there were taking me out to a, a nice restaurant, a special restaurant. We were getting quite close, and they, oh no, what, what's the problem? Oh no, the restaurant's closed because there are no cars outside. The restaurant's closed because there are no cars outside. You're saying the restaurant can only open when there are cars outside? No, 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 no. because there's no cars outside, it's not given the reason the restaurant's closed, it's given the evidence. So that from afar you can see, oh yeah, the restaurant's closed. That's why there's no cars outside. That's what Jesus is doing here in verse 47. Her love isn't the reason her sins are forgiven, it's the evidence that her sins are forgiven. That's that's why she came to the house in the first place, isn't it? Um, Obviously, she's met Jesus somewhere before. The Bible doesn't tell us where. It could have been one of those parties that the religious people really blamed Jesus for going to. Or maybe maybe Jesus was just preaching outside somewhere and she was in the crowd. We don't know. Um, whatever it was, she heard the good news. The good news of Jesus' love and forgiveness. And she received that forgiveness from Jesus. And so later, when she finds out that Jesus is having, having lunch at this Pharisee's house, well, this is her golden opportunity. This is her chance to come to Jesus and say, thank you. So she gets her alabaster flask of ointment and comes to find Jesus, even though it means she has to enter into the lion's den. Obviously she's not going to be welcome in the Pharisee's house, um, not with her reputation, but actually she doesn't care anymore. Actually now there's only one man in her life whose opinion matters, and that's Jesus. And so quietly she walks up behind Jesus and gets ready to pour out her, her special ointment when well, then the emotion just overwhelms her, and she starts to cry. Tears of joy, perhaps. The joy to meet the man who forgave all her sins and gave her a fresh start to life. Maybe, maybe tears of relief. Relief for that heavy burden of sin and guilt that she's carried for years, that's defined her in her eyes and the eyes of everyone. Well, that crushing burden has now gone. It's been lifted. And it's disappeared forever and ever and ever. Jesus has set her free. And so she cries. And as she cries, the tears come faster and faster all over Jesus' feet. And she thinks, oh no, what have I done now? How can I dry his feet again? And oh, what can I use? Oh yeah, my hair. So she lets her hair down to dry Jesus' feet. And um, Who cares what others think? They don't matter anymore. The only one that matters now is Jesus. And she pours out all this expensive ointment and gives Jesus her very best and kisses his feet over and over in devotion, therefore I tell you, says Jesus, her sins which are forgi- many are forgiven, for she loved much. And then I imagine he looks at the Pharisee and says, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. It's ironic, isn't it? Jesus makes this holy spiritual Pharisee learn a spiritual lesson from the sinful woman. A woman the whole community despised. But Jesus doesn't despise her. He doesn't care about her reputation or her her position on that snakes and ladders board. What Jesus notices is how much he loves him. And now there's just one thing left to do. And Jesus reassures her that her sins truly are forgiven. Verses 48 to 50. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So there, in the lion's den, Jesus publicly clears her character. Restores her reputation, lets her go out free in peace to love and serve the Lord. Jesus shows us again who this woman is. Yeah, she's a sinner. She admits that. Everyone knows that. But what kind of sinner? Not a filthy, dirty sinner, but a cleansed sinner. A forgiven sinner, a loving sinner, a sinner who loves because God first loved her, because he forgave her, because he wrote off that debt she could never repay, ultimately, at his own expense through Jesus' death on the cross. So, uh, Jesus has shown us who uh, Simon the Pharisee is as well. Like the woman, he's also a sinner. Unlike the woman, he's an unforgiven, unloving sinner. And finally, Jesus shows us again who he really is. Yeah, he's more than the prophet. But yeah, how much more? Well, your sins are forgiven, he says. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. People ask, who is this who even forgives sins? Well, we know the rest we know from the Bible who Jesus is. Yeah, he's, he can forgive sins. Why? Because he's so much more than the prophet. He's in another class again. He's actually God. The son of God. The God who loves sinners and forgives sinners. That's who Jesus is. And if that's who Jesus really is, then of course, that means we all have a choice to make this morning, a choice that sets the pattern of our whole lives. Who would you rather be? Would you rather be that Pharisee, smugly reclining there, uh, judging other people? Or would you rather be this sinful woman, extravagantly loving Jesus, pouring out the very best in everything she has, an extravagant devotion to Jesus, loving him because he first loved us? and gave his life to rescue us from that sinking ship, to forgive us, to pay our fine, to let us go free, to wash us clean, so that now we can go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Both in one-off acts of devotion, like we see from this woman, also uh, in a pattern of a whole life poured out for him. Uh, we see a snippet of that in our final verses today, Luke 8, one to three. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So what do we see here? We see men and women from all walks of society giving all they have in love to support Jesus's mission. So there's the 12 apostles, you've got a fisherman, a tax collector, Lots of women as well. Mary Magdalene, rescued from evil spirits. Joanna, married to a top government official. Susanna, many others. We don't even know their names, most of them. Um, But what do they have in common? Well, they're pouring out their different gifts and abilities to support Jesus as he goes from town to town, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. The good news that brings forgiveness, peace, and love. That turns unforgiven, dirty sinners into cleansed forgiven, loving disciples of Christ. That's why we're here at St. Mary's Cathedral this morning, isn't it? Why does does this cathedral exist? I wonder if you noticed and you weigh in. There was a sign by the door. Uh, What are we here for? Well, we're here to glorify God together in response to His grace by making disciples of Jesus Christ. This morning's passage helps us to understand especially one phrase in that mission statement. In response to His grace, we love much because we've been forgiven much. And that answers the question from the start, doesn't it? Do you remember that question? I always try to do my best for God but I still don't feel that I really love Him. How can I love God more? But what's the standard response? What's the usual way that Christians try to build up their love for God? Well, it's spiritual snakes and ladders, isn't it? You know, we, uh, we try judging ourselves and others by what we do, by our, our public reputations as disciples of Christ. But actually, what really defines who we are? Is it actually what we do for God? No. What defines us is what God has done for us. So what's the real way that we're going to get in spiritual shape in 2016? Well, Simon the Pharisee shows us that actually it's not by doing more for God. Actually, that kind of resolution can really backfire, because doing more for God can even make us love God less if it makes us forget how much God has done for us first. If it makes us start thinking that we're somehow able to build up spiritual credit with God, rather than serving in response to His grace. If Jesus came into this multi-purpose hall this morning, um, I think maybe he would have a question For each of us to consider. Jesus' question uh, for us is this. Will you remember how much I have forgiven you? Will you remember how much I have forgiven you? Well, how can we make sure that we do always remember? How can we make sure we never forget the price that Jesus paid to set us free? A debt so big that there's never been a day in our lives we've even been able to pay off its interest. Well, here are three things that help me. i, I, I put them on the, the bottom of your outline for you to fill in. Um, maybe they'll help you too. So the first thing I found that really helps is actually sharing the gospel. How so? Because well, why, why do I love explaining the good news so much to people they've never heard? You know, one-to-one or maybe leading a Christianity Explore group. Why do I love that so much? Well, one reason I, I really love it is it's that moment when it just clicks and they understand it. What? God's like that? He's like that amazing bank manager who will write off my debt at his own expense, freely, really? That's what God's like? He just sets me free, just as I trust in him? And when people get that, yeah, I've studied grace, I know about grace, but that's when it comes alive again, when I see it in somebody else's life, it's, yeah, it's a wonderful feeling. Um, forgiveness becomes fresh once again, it doesn't actually have to be evangelism, I don't need to be telling non-Christians, even anybody, if I'm sharing the gospel with anybody. Um, it, it can really help love, God's love come alive in my life again. Just preparing this sermon really refreshed me. Um, it has the same effect. So there's one thing maybe you can do this year. Yeah, we know we should be sharing the gospel, lots of reasons for it. But here's one reason. Um, because it's not just going to do them good, just how them, what God can do for them, but also it will do you good as well. Um, the second thing I find helps is my little morning routine that I have, which I follow um, pretty much every morning, I have done ever since I was at university many, many years ago, oh, before I even knew Tim. Um, so every day when I first wake up, um, I, the first words I say are from Psalm 32, uh, for our Old Testament reading today, but from the NIV. Um, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. That's the first thing I say every morning, first time I wake up, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And those words remind me who I really am and my real position before God. And who I am and my position before God is actually unchanging, absolutely secure. Um, Regardless of how I feel, regardless of what others are thinking of me, regardless of what I've achieved or failed to achieve, or how things are going in life generally, I wake up in the morning, I remember, yes, I'm blessed Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Yes, it's, I'm a sinner, but I'm also a forgiven sinner. So that's the second way that we can grow to love God more. Get into the habit regularly of reminding ourselves how much God has forgiven us personally. Maybe this is something quite new uh, to some people here this morning, maybe... Um, uh, you're fairly new at church or um, thinking about Christian things, and uh, you, you're not pretty sure about Jesus actually and forgiveness, but you'd like to know more. Well, maybe, if, if, if so, after the sermon, um, there should be a blue card in your Bible. Take that out and uh, tick the fourth box that says, I would like to speak to someone about the Christian faith, and then put it in the, the box over in the corner just by the door on the way out that says offering box. Um, or, oh, of course, even, even better. Oh, well, the, same, the same. You can also do just talk to one of your Christian friends talk to me, talk to, one of the start- talk to anybody about it, who might be able to give you a bit of insight about how they've discovered Jesus and, and his forgiveness for them, and help you to take the next step, maybe. And this brings us to a third thing that we can do. Um, it's always good to keep coming to church to hear about Jesus's forgiveness and to learn about what he's done for us and his great love for us. And for me, I find one part of the church that, really, oops, I should put up, that One thing that really helps me in church is saying, uh, the weekly confession. The confession reminds us every week that life's not about spiritual snakes and ladders. It's not. If I'm honest, sometimes I start the confession thinking I'm feeling you know, somewhat uh, spiritually proud um, of how far I've climbed up Jesus' ladder. Uh, I think of the progress I've made. Imagine it's because actually I'm a, a good person. Not perfect, but generally pretty good person. Um, and I forget that actually the moment I was born, God put me in a family that taught me not to do all the sinful things that I was thinking and saying. God raised me in a society which discouraged blatant acts of sin and then put me through churches, church after church, good churches, which strengthened me again and also guarded me and protected me from expressing some of the things that actually are inside me, some of the things that I might do or say if I knew that there would be no consequences, if I could get away with whatever I wanted to do. I can forget that because I've been so trained by church and family and society to, to do good things before people that I can forget what, what I'm like in my, in my heart. That the heart is deceitful beyond all things and desperately wicked. So sometimes I come to church feeling like quite a good person, really. Um, and then at the confession, I'm confronted by the cross. And the cross reminds me who I really am I'm a sinner. And my sin is huge, it must be huge, because just think of the price that God paid to forgive me. Jesus had to die on the cross for me to be forgiven. God would never put his sin through that, if there was any easier way. Other times I came to church feeling a bit like a hypocrite actually, Um, weighed down with feelings of guilt, um, feeling very sinful, maybe I've been bitten by that dirty snake um, of sin once again, filthy. I'm feeling unworthy to stand before people like well, like all of you who look so, so holy and pure and righteous and kind and good and nice and just good Christians. Yeah, if I, if I feel unworthy to be with you, how, how much more unworthy am I to stand before God? And then at the confession, I'm confronted by the cross. And the cross reminds me who I am. Yes, I am a sinner, but I'm not a dirty, filthy sinner. I'm a cleansed sinner. I'm a forgiven sinner. Yeah, Jesus knows my sin even better than I do. Uh, But this is the amazing thing. Even though he's seen it all, he doesn't condemn me. Actually, he forgives me. He writes off my entire debt at his own expense. And then he lets me go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Well, let's take a moment now as you finish in silence, just to reflect on what God might have been saying to to us personally this morning through the sermon, um, to remember how much he loves us, how much we have been forgiven. And then we'll continue the service by saying the confession together, which you can find on, in the inside of your, your sheet. So I'll give you a couple of moments to reflect first, and then I'll lead us in that. OK, let's say the words of the confession, which are in the inside of your handout, and also may be appearing on the screen together almighty god father of our lord jesus christ creator of everything judge of everyone we admit that we have sinned against you in thought speech and action and deserve your just punishment we truly repent and are sorry for what we have done have mercy on us merciful father for the sake of your son jesus christ who died for us forgive us all that is past and enable us to serve and please you in a fresh way to the glory of your name. Amen. The Bible tells us that Jesus died for our sins and God promises to forgive all who truly trust and turn to him, who will humbly repent and believe in the gospel. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen.